All right, well, as was said earlier, can you guys hear me okay, even with AC and everything? Okay, great. Uh, as was said earlier, today is our fifth week, our fifth week in our Uncommon Sense series, and this week we're looking at the Proverbs that have to do with family, about family relationships. And what I want to do is I want to break that down by looking at three different family relationships and what Proverbs has to offer us for wisdom for those relationships. So the first relationship is how spouses should relate to each other. Uh, the second one is how parents are supposed to relate to their children. And the third one is how children should relate to parents. Now I recognize that not all of us here are married. Uh, not all of us have kids and not all of us have parents who are alive. Uh, so certain parts of this message may be less relevant to you than other ones. But whatever our unique situation is, the topic of family inevitably has relevance for all of us. Um, even if we don't know our biological family. Because every single one of us uh, has a biological father and a biological mother. Every single one of us uh, when we came into this world, we were wholly and completely dependent on someone to take care of us, right? It, you, you come into this world, and if, if nobody takes it upon themselves to actively feed you, clothe you, change your diapers, you're not going to make it. So any one of us who is here, who has made it to maturity, and we're sitting in one of these chairs, we had someone do that for us. We had some experience of family even if it wasn't our biological family. Someone stepped into that role and did that. Now our experience overall of, of family, it could be really good, it could be not so good, it could be terrible, but all of us have had some experience of family. So let's start with what the Proverbs have to say about that first relationship, the spousal relationship. Now two weeks ago, if you were here, hopefully you remember that we talked about the Proverbs wisdom on sex. And there were several points made in that message that are very relevant to what we're talking about today. Uh, so some of this might sound like a repeat, but I think it's important. Uh, the Proverbs remind us that ideally, the relationship between spouses is supposed to have these, uh, whoops, these three qualities. So one is it's supposed to be a covenant relationship covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is a relationship that is permanent and binding. So it's supposed to be a relationship of lifelong faithfulness. And I have uh, scripture notations there for, for the scriptures that support that, but since we went into detail with that two weeks ago, I'm not going to reiterate them right now. If you weren't here, I encourage you to look those up. Um, second one, spouses are supposed to relate to each other in a, in a manner of intimate friendship intimate friendship. Proverbs uses a special word to describe the relationship between spouses. Uh, and it's a, in, in the Hebrew, the word is aluf. And uh, that word gets translated as partner, which is not a bad translation, but I think that we can miss just how significant the word is if we just hear that word partner. You know, people have business partners. It doesn't really mean something as significant as what aluf means. An aloof is a close friend. So an, an, an aloof is the kind of person that you call up when you have some exciting news to share or you have a funny story that you want to share. Uh, it's somebody that you're very close with, someone that you love spending time with. And that's 
what your spouse is supposed to be, your intimate friend, your aloof. And then three, uh, the relationship between spouses is supposed to be a relationship of erotic love. Uh, two weeks ago, I made the point that God's intention for sex is that it takes place within a covenant relationship, within a relationship of lifelong faithfulness. Uh, but within that covenant relationship, God, even though he, he restricts sex to that relationship, he encourages it within that context of covenant faithfulness. Uh, that's the context that he created it for, and when that context is there, he encourages that expression of love. Uh, if you doubt that at all, and you weren't here two weeks ago, just go and read Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Uh, it's very clear how God feels about that there. So to put it all together, the relationship between spouses is supposed to be one of intimate friendship and erotic love in the context of lifelong faithfulness. Now, I think it goes without saying that no marriage is perfect. Um, some marriages do really well in the friendship category, but struggle more in the erotic category. Some have the reverse issue. Some struggle in both areas. But the most important element is that lifelong faithfulness, uh, that, that covenant commitment that says, I am resolved to be faithful to you. Uh, through the ups and downs of life and even the ups and downs of our relationship, I am committed. And the New Testament emphasizes that the reason we're supposed to treat our spouses with that kind of faithfulness is because that's the kind of faithfulness that God has for us. That's the kind of faithfulness that God demonstrated by sending his son Jesus to the earth, by coming and living the life of a human being and suffering and dying on a cross to save us from our sins. The pastor and author Tim Keller, uh, someone that I appreciate, he has a phrase for what marriage is supposed to be that I really like. He says that marriage is supposed to be gospel reenactment. Gospel reenactment. Meaning that our marriages are supposed to be like little reenactments of the gospel. Uh, so just as Jesus served us, we are called to reenact that by serving our spouses. Uh, just as God through Jesus was relentlessly faithful to us, even to the, to the point of death, he was relentlessly committed to our blessing and growth, we should also be like that for our spouses, relentlessly committed to their blessing and growth. And as we do that, we model what the love of God is like to each other and to the world. I think that one of the things that... Uh, that harms many marriages today, and I realize that I'm speaking still as an unmarried person, but um, I think this is, this is true. I think one of the things that harms many marriages today is that we enter into marriage thinking that the primary purpose of marriage is to make us happy. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be more happy because you're getting married. There's nothing wrong with hoping to be more happy by getting married, and, and marriage does tend to boost one's happiness. Um, but that can't be the sole purpose of marriage. And if it is, I think that leads to problems. Um, because if we think the primary purpose of marriage is, is just to make us happy, if we start to enter into a season where our marriage is not making us very happy, then we think, well, there's no reason to stay in this, right? If you have a toaster and it doesn't make toast, there's no reason to keep the toaster. You just 
get rid of it. The purpose is not being fulfilled. But if we see marriage as having a greater purpose than just making us happy, then when the hard times come, we're more likely to try and make the marriage work. And what the, what the New Testament tells us is that the greater purpose that we need to have for marriage is this gospel reenactment. Marriage is a way of demonstrating to each other and to the world around us what the loving faithfulness of God looks like. Uh, and again, I realize I don't have personal experience with that yet, but I suspect that when we're able to do that, when we're able to see our marriage as being more than just a tool for our own personal happiness, um, then not only are our marriages more likely to last, but I suspect we're more likely to actually enjoy them, too. Because no other person can bear the weight of being responsible for your happiness. It, that just does not work very well. If you, if you put that kind of weight on another person, that person will just collapse under that pressure. The only, the only thing that can bear that weight of the responsibility for your happiness is God himself. That's it. So a key to really enjoying our marriage is not putting the responsibility for our happiness on our spouse. Instead, we need to find our happiness in God, in honoring God. And if our happiness is primarily found there, then we're going to have incentive for staying in our marriages when things get tough. Uh, because we're, we're, um, and we're going to be free to enjoy our marriages more because we won't be placing this unbearable burden on our spouse. And if for some reason we don't end up getting married, uh, we will have a reason not to despair, right? Because our happiness is found first and foremost in God. Now, I do want to add, that I, I want to make one clarification that I think is very important. Covenant faithfulness to a spouse does not mean accepting a pattern of abuse. I think this is a very important point to make because statistics indicate that as many as 25% of women are experiencing in the United States um, abuse, a pattern of abuse from an intimate partner or a former intimate partner. 25%, one in four. And sadly, what has happened in many churches is that because we value covenant faithfulness to your spouse, um, we end up excusing this sort of thing or uh, not giving it the attention that it deserves. Um, Pastors have made the mistake of saying when a, a woman who is abused comes to them, well, you really you have to be faithful to your spouse, just as Jesus put up with a, a lot of, uh, uh, of pain and suffering. You know, sometimes in our marriages we have to do that. Um, and, you know, that is a very unfortunate thing that that has happened in some churches. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. And here's the problem with that way of thinking, one of the problems with that way of thinking. To be faithful to our spouse is to be faithful to helping him or her become the kind of person that God has called them to be. And you don't do that when you excuse a pattern of abuse. Right? When we excuse a pattern of abuse on the grounds that, well, we have to be faithful to our covenant, we're actually not being faithful to our covenant because we're not helping our spouse to grow. We're not helping our spouse to, to move beyond um, 
the pattern of sinful behavior that they're stuck in. Uh, and sometimes in very serious situations of abuse, the most faithful thing that we can do for our spouse and for our covenant is to separate in order to show how serious the sin is. Sometimes that's the most loving thing we can do. Before we move on to the next family relationship, uh, I want to point out really quickly two other things that I think we can learn from the Proverbs about having a healthy spousal relationship. And the place I want to look to do that is Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is a chapter, you might be familiar with it, it describes an exemplary woman or an exemplary wife. And uh, here's what it says. We won't read the whole thing, but we'll look at part of it. It says, A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Now, this list goes on, but what I want us to notice here is that the Proverbs idea of a great woman, of a great wife, is that she's strong, right? She's resourceful. She's a hard worker. She's compassionate. And I emphasize that because I think sometimes, uh, both in the world at large and in the church, there's this idea that true femininity means being very delicate, um, needing somebody to take care of you. And what really strikes me about this passage is that it's got a totally different idea of what exemplary femininity looks like, right? It looks like strength, arms that are strong for the task. So in the spousal relationship, according to the wisdom of the Proverbs, it is good for a woman to be strong and resourceful Right? and fully engaged in managing the household. Uh, and I realize that for some of you, you might think it, it seems unnecessary to bring that up in this day and age, uh, but I think it's an important point to emphasize because stereotypes surrounding women, uh, stereotypes of, of weakness and incompetence still persist. Uh, and that needs to be combated. And one place that combats that is Proverbs 31. And I think we also see in Proverbs 31 a good example of what a husband should do when his wife demonstrates that strength. Uh, he should not be threatened by it. Uh, he, uh, he should not try to suppress it. He should encourage it. Proverbs 31, 28 uh, says, Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Right? So a good spousal relationship is one that involves praising each other. So husbands, you know, when was the last time that you praised your wife for the strength that she's demonstrated? Um, the word husband actually means to, to cultivate. You know, it's like a term in, in uh, botany and that sort of thing where you, you, you cultivate a, a plant, you know. And um, 
And so when we cultivate another human being, uh, part of that involves encouraging and praising, right? So if you're a husband, think, oh, one of my primary jobs is to encourage and praise uh, my wife. All right, so a lot more could be said about the spousal relationship, but we got to move on. So the next family relationship is parents relating to their children, how parents are supposed to re relate to children. And I want us to look at two proverbs that on first glance might be concerning to some of us. Okay, so try to with, withhold your judgment until you hear everything I have to say here. Uh, proverbs 13, 24. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And then Proverbs 22:15, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So, if you've ever heard the phrase, spare the rod, spoil the child, that is where this comes from. Now, unfortunately, what often happens is that these verses are just used primarily to justify corporal punishment. So to justify striking your kids uh, in order to correct them. But I don't think that's really the emphasis that what we should be taking away from these verses. Now let me explain why. Both of these proverbs use the word rod, right? Now, the word for the rod can refer to something that is used to strike a person. That is true. Uh, but it doesn't have to refer to that. For example, Psalm 23, very famous psalm uh, about how the Lord is like a shepherd and we are like his sheep. And uh, verse 4, Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, the de of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now the word there for rod, that's the same Hebrew word that gets used in those Proverbs that we just looked at. Uh, now notice here the rod is something that brings comfort. You know, if, if it was pr primarily used for hitting the sheep, I don't think the sheep would be like, ah, the rod, it brings me comfort, right? It would, the, the rod would be a source of terror and fear. Um, so, I think the main point that we should be taking from these Proverbs here is not that parents should uh, need to be striking their children, uh, but that those of us who are parents have a responsibility to guide and correct our kids. That is the rod of discipline, the authority of discipline. Discipline is about correction. Um, so those of us who are parents have a responsibility to do that, and if we don't, we harm our kids. Uh, if you are a parent, basically what Proverbs tells you is this. If you love your kids, you will guide them. Okay? You will teach them. And you will do what you can to help them become virtuous people. Just like what uh, the Ferrers and the Redferns pledged to do this morning. And it's important for parents to do that with kids because as the second proverb there tells us, kids are not naturally wise. None of us are naturally wise, but especially when we're young, we are not naturally wise. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. We need to be taught. Uh, good character doesn't just come 
naturally. Now, I'm not a parent, so I feel a little weird about giving advice on parenting. Uh, I realize that raising kids has got to be one of the hardest things to do in the world. And so, parents, you guys have my respect and my admiration. So, what I'm saying here is not meant to be accusatory at all. But from my, from my limited perspective, something that I've noticed going on in society at large, not in our church, but in society at large, is it seems like a, a lot of parents are giving up their role as, as the authority, as the, as the, the enforcer of discipline uh, in, in that relationship, that parental relationship. And of course, you know, as kids get older, um, parents do need to step back some and, and allow them to make, make decisions. But I'm talking about parents giving up their, their authoritative role even when the kids are really young. Uh, maybe my perception is off, but it seems to me like a lot of parents see their role simply as affirming their kids or encouraging their kids and never as disciplining or correcting their kids. And, and for, for parents that are going to do their job well, there has to be both, right? And one of the reasons I say this is because I have a lot of friends who are teachers. Specifically, I have several friends that are middle school teachers. Uh, <laughs> And some of them have told me that the most challenging aspect of doing their job is dealing with parents. Um, because so many parents get immediately extremely defensive and angry if any teacher ever says anything less than wonderful about their kid's behavior and performance. Uh, I've had friends say that parents have cursed at them, called them ugly to their face, as teachers, um, all because they just tried to do their job. You know, just because they tried to hold the students in their classroom to some sort of uh, academic or behavioral standards. And so many parents would just assume that their kids were right and the teacher was wrong, uh, and that if the kids did have any problems in school, that it was all the teacher's fault. The teacher just had to take all the blame. Now it seems that, to me, that it used to be that if a teacher called a parent, it wasn't the teacher that was afraid of the reaction that they were going to get. It was, it was the kid at home that was like, oh no, you know, the teacher called my, my mom and now I'm scared of what's going to happen. Um, but now it almost seems like the reverse is true, that the, the, the teachers are just terrified to call the parents because they're afraid of how the parents are going to react. Um, so I think it's good for us to be reminded of this simple truth in the Proverbs that Kids do need loving correction. They do. They need loving discipline. You know, we should not be insulted at all if a teacher calls us to tell us that our kid has some folly in them, right? Because we know they do. Like, that's inevitable. Um, and I'm not saying that kids are never falsely accused or that all teachers are fair, but we do need to keep this in mind. You know, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. If you remember your own childhood, you can recognize that as well, right? Um, and there are times where kids need that loving correction. And not giving them that in the long run is harmful. All right, so one final family relationship to look at, how children are supposed to relate to parents. Now, the Proverbs really make one major point when it comes to this question. Uh, like with the last relationship, it is a simple point, but it's an important one. 
Proverbs 15:20. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish man despises his mother. In Proverbs 20:20, 20, 20, if a man curses his father or mother, his lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. So what's the point here? The first proverb tells us that we, we should not despise our parents. And the second one tells us that we should not curse our parents. So they have the same basic message. Don't despise or curse, right? And, and the point is that if we do these things, it, it will have negative consequences for us. And that's, that's the negative way of expressing what the Bible is teaching. The positive way of expressing what it's saying is that we should honor our parents. That's something that we see throughout the whole Bible. It's a command that shows up over and over again. In fact, not only is it a command that shows up all throughout the Bible, but it's, it's one of the big ten, right? The Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment, uh, Exodus 20:12 says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. And again, there's that connection between honoring your mother and father and long life, healthy life. Um, um, it, it, it's something that has personal benefits. So we're all supposed to honor our parents. That is the wisdom of God. But what does that mean? What does that mean? I, I was in college ministry for six years. And during that time, I heard a lot of college students ask this question. What does it mean to honor my parents? Um, because a lot of college students who got excited about their faith and wanted to do things like go on mission trips and that sort of thing, or maybe they wanted to go to seminary after uh, doing their undergrad, didn't have the support of their parents who were not Christians. right? And sometimes they wanted to do things that they thought God was leading them to do, and their parents were Christians, but their parents still didn't want them to do those things. And so they were asking, what does it mean to honor my parents in this situation? It's a good question. And, you know, what if your parents want you to pursue a career or a major that you're not interested in? What does it look like to honor them then? What does it look like to honor your parents if they're neglectful or they're abusive? Some important questions. Now, once again, I have to give uh, pastor author Tim Keller some props for the insight I'm about to share. Uh, he points out that the Bible consistently tells us to honor our parents. But what's interesting is what it doesn't tell us to do. Okay? It doesn't consistently tell us to admire our parents. It doesn't consistently tell us to obey our parents. And it doesn't even consistently tell us to trust our parents but it tells us to honor. And honor is not the same as any of those other things. And, and Tim Keller says that he thinks that this is very intentional because, um, because, because it would never be appropriate to always obey or trust or admire your parents. There's too many situations, possible situations, where it would not be appropriate to do those things. But it is always appropriate to honor your parents. So, what does it mean then to honor your parents if it doesn't mean those things? Well, to put it simply, to honor our parents is to treat them with respect. Uh, when we're children, that means listening to them, respecting the fact that they are an authority over us, that they know better than us. Uh, it means obeying, but when we get older, it gets a little more complicated. What does this mean to respect or honor our parents? So, I put together a list of five tips 
for those of us as we are getting older for what it means to honor our parents, practically speaking. And these, these tips aren't taken directly from uh, scriptural passages, but the values they reflect are rooted in the wisdom of the Proverbs. So, I offer these to you guys. Uh, first tip, communicate. You know, except in extreme circumstances, um, estrangement isn't a good way to honor our parents. Uh, if your parents want to hear from you, take the time to communicate with them. That is one way that you can honor them. Let them know what's going on in your life. You know, most of the time they do really want to know. And so take the time to let them know. Uh, you shouldn't feel like you have to be on the phone with them all the time, but you should feel a responsibility to stay in touch. All right, number two, honor them in the traditional ways. So whatever is appropriate to your culture. You know, for, for me, it's when Mother's Day comes around, I should do something. When Father's Day comes around, I should do something. Birthdays, um, holidays, uh, take those, those, those times, those, those times that our culture has set aside to honor our parents, to honor them, to respect them. Three, and this is one that's especially relevant, I think, for, uh, for college students or young adults. If you're going against their wishes, pay your own way when you do. Uh, as we get older, we should feel the freedom to make our own decisions. But it's not honoring to our parents to take their money in order to help us make those decisions that they don't like. Um, so honor your parents by seeking to provide for yourself as much as you can. Number four, when you disagree with your parents, calmly explain why. This can be, a, I think, a really hard one to actually put into practice, um, but it's a great principle, great one to strive for. Uh, let's say you're a college student and your parents want you uh, to do a major that you really, really do not want to do. Uh, now, you may be in a very difficult position because chances are you cannot afford to pay your own way at that stage of life, right? So if you find yourself in that situation, my recommendation to you would be to communicate as calmly and honestly as you can with your parents. You know, tell them, this career that you want me to follow, like, my heart is just not in it at all. I don't feel like I'm made for this. I don't feel like this is what brings me to life. I don't feel like it's, it's where my heart is. I, I don't feel like I have the discipline in myself to, to do this and enjoy it. But when you do that, it's appropriate to, apply, uh, to, to have some sort of counter, like, but this is what I, I do want to do. This is what I do want to work toward, you know? And I would encourage you to ask very honestly, you know, is this a choice that I am going to have the freedom to make, the thing that I do here? Um, or if uh, I do something different, are you guys not going to fund my education? Am I going to have to find a different way to pay for my education? Just ask that question honestly, because if you put that into their court, they're going to have to think about it, you know? And um, you may find their, their heart softening to your plight when they realize that you are willing to try and find a way to pay your own way. Um, that's how serious you are about this. Number five, 
Thank them for the things you appreciate. You know, I started this message by reminding us all that we, we come into the world and we are completely and totally dependent on somebody to take care of us. And the only way we make it to adulthood is if somebody takes that time to provide for us. So all of us have somebody to thank, somebody who did that. Uh, even if keeping us alive is the only thing that they did successfully, <laughs> we still have something to thank for them there. Um, so be mindful of that and, and take, take that moment to thank your parents uh, for doing what they did and keep your eyes open for other things that they've done that you can express appreciation for. And then finally, forgive them. Forgive them. Whether your parents were really relatively good or relatively bad, your parents made mistakes. Uh, all of our parents made mistakes. And so part of honoring our parents is coming to a place where we recognize that like us, they are human beings, they are flawed, and they need grace. They need the grace of God, and they need grace from us as well. And you remember in those Proverbs that we looked at, uh, they talked about how when we don't honor our parents, it causes harm. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why it's important to honor them by, by forgiving them. Because when we hold on to pain from feeling deprived in some way by the way they raised us, we stay in bondage to that. You know? And in one of the ways that we can honor them and we can find freedom, both in our relationship with them and in our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with God, is by, by being willing to forgive them, to extend that grace to them. You know, before our parents had a role in messing us up, their parents had a role in messing them up. And their parents before them had a role in messing them up, and all the way back to Adam and Eve. And we, we have to recognize, um, recognize that we all need that grace, and to extend it even to the ones who are our authority over us in our childhood. So three important relationships that in some way affect all of us, uh, spouses, parents with children, and children with parents. And my charge this morning is may we strive to embody the Proverbs wisdom in all three of those areas. And when we fall short, because we all do and we all will, may we always return to the grace of God to sustain us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your wisdom. And God, we ask that you would give us strength to put it into practice in our lives. Lord, we pray that in our uh, relationships with our spouses, uh, with our children, um, with our parents, that you would help us first and foremost to find our identity and our uh, security, our happiness in you. And uh, we pray that in all those relationships, we would find freedom by finding our, our happiness first in you and uh, not expecting it from our spouse or our children or our parents. Um, and I pray that as we do, we would be freed up to um, have relationships of, of love and grace and, um, and joy in all three of those areas, Lord. And I pray for those of us who may need healing in any of those relationships, that this, this morning, you might begin a work of restoration in that relationship. In Jesus' name.
Amen.